0: I was going to, as I said, I'm going to make some comments about fathers. I wasn't going to, but I woke up this morning, and I, the Lord put this on my heart issue about fathers. Um, and I suppose one of the things, I, I, one of the reasons I want to mention it is because we are in such an upside down society. I mean, we were talking before church here about the gay pride flag flying over our high, high schools all month long, as though that might be one of the 12th most important things we need to think about throughout the course of, of the year. Our deacon did mention that there are only six colors on that flag, which of course represents the number of man, the true rainbow having seven colors. And why that is significant, of course, the seven represents perfection. But if you read in the book of of Revelation, um, when John is carried up into heaven, he, uh, in verses, I'm in uh, Revelation chapter 4. Um, I'll pick it up in verse 2, and it says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. Now, for those of you that that fly and uh, look out the window when you're flying, you'll realize that when you're up above, when you see a rainbow, it's actually a full circle. It's on the ground that that it's a bow, but when you're up... uh, In the heavens, I'll put that in quotes, it's actually a full circle. So he's seeing a full circle here, rainbow, around the throne of God. And it says, it's like unto an emerald. Emerald is the center color of a rainbow. And so it's significant that a rainbow has a center color, that it has seven uh, in color. And all of these things, of course, God has ordained to glorify himself. Everything he does, he does to uh, glorify himself. And that he would um, use the rainbow as a sign of his covenant, that he would not again destroy the earth by flood, didn't say he wasn't going to destroy it again, but he's not going to destroy it again by a flood, is significant. A bow, of course, is a weapon of war, which is completely lost to these people that want to fly a six-colored rainbow flag. And that bow is drawn towards heaven, indicating man's war against God. Um, So there's, there's significance in all these things. And I guess that's one of the things I wanted to share with you this morning about fathers and how God has ordained a structure in the family because it glorifies himself. And so fathers as it says in Genesis chapter 3, you know, that by the sweat of thy brow thou shalt make thy living. A father is to lead and provide for the family, and the primary component of that is sacrificial in nature. And this is why I think men are prone to flee that responsibility, because it contradicts our selfish tendencies, uh, which are to put our own felt needs wants and desires first. And that's what a lot of men do. They put themselves ahead of their families and the God's ordained structure for the family. When men fail to be fathers uh, or either, they either leave overtly or they fail to be involved in their children's lives, um, they do so to the hurt of their children. Um, it takes a proactive father and a proactive mother to raise a child, not a village, takes one father and one mother to raise a child. Now you can look up these statistics as easily as I can, and I looked them up yesterday, and there's quite a number of statistics that talk about how children with absent fathers have lower academic performance, they have more drug abuse, they're more prone to violence, there are more teen pregnancies amongst the daughters uh, whose fathers are absent, they are more likely to have children out of wedlock, women are more likely to be obese if they don't have their fathers, and there is far greater incarceration amongst men that were raised without a father. Now, again, respecting God's economy and his ordained order for the families, it stands to reason that children without their earthly fathers would suffer psychological and emotional distress, which would man itself, to itself in a variety of self-destructive negative and social behavior. It stands to reason if you don't do things God's way, it's not gonna work for you. And there's no surprise here that 100% of the people without a heavenly father end up in the lake of fire. Not a coincidence that God has ordained things to glorify himself. Any behavior, any human behavior or institution that fails to model that which God has ordained will have very negative spiritual consequences. Because, again, God has ordained all things for his glory. If you don't have an earthly father, you're going to have trouble. If you don't have a heavenly father, you're dead in trespasses and sins. And it's as simple as that. Being a father requires sacrificial love. At the very least, you're going to have to part with your paycheck. You're going to earn money. You're going to work labor. You're going to come home, and you're going to watch it evaporate. You're going to have to part with your toys. You're going to have to part with a bigger house. You're going to have to part with certain career aspirations and any number of things that you might covet in this world. But more importantly, you're going to have to part with your time. You're going to have to set aside the things that you might want to do, both personally and professionally, to do the things that your children want to do so you can pour your love into them and help them develop as God-fearing, responsible adults. And given where our society is these days, with gender dysphoria and all of this foolishness that's going on, this is more important now than it has ever been. Now, again, considering God's ordained structure for the family, we look to Christ, who is the expressed image of the person of God. There is no greater demonstration of sacrificial love than what we see in God and what he did for his children. Now, Christ is always the example set before us. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he who is the Son of God, he who is going to be born of a woman, speaking of Christ, nevertheless, he is called the mighty God, the everlasting Father. That's a strange... um, It seems oxymoronic that the Son of God would also be called the everlasting Father, but that's what he shall be called. And so we look to him as an example of what a father should be. Of a truth, the mighty God stepped out of his glory, made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, Was made in the likeness of men, and he humbled himself. And let me share this with you. Being a father will humble you. Being married is humbling enough, but I tell you what, you have kids and it will really humble you. And he laid down his life for his children. Our deacon read from Romans chapter 5, verse 6, it says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, he died for his children says, we were without strength, meaning we were not strong enough to remedy our situation, but we were strong enough to reject Him, to rebel against Him, to despise Him, and to condemn our Heavenly Father. Verse 8 of Romans 5 says, but God commended His love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 says, when we were enemies. Now, giving to your children and pouring your life into them is comparatively easy when they are appreciative, respectful, and obedient, which is not the nature of children who are just little people, meaning little sinners. They have all the characteristics and attributes of sinners. If you're a parent, you see that as soon as they be born. The Scripture says as soon as they be born, they are speaking lies. Um, Now, but giving is very difficult when they are sullen, disrespectful, disobedient, and rebellious, which represents the true hearts of the people for whom Christ died. So in Isaiah 9-6, he says that he shall be called the Everlasting Father. He is a father that will never leave nor forsake his children, unlike many of our earthly fathers. He is ever-loving, and ever poured himself into the lives of his children. He is the perfect example of what a father should be. So I want to leave that thought with you this day with respect to Father's Day, that we all come short of being what a father should be, but not Christ himself. And so we look to him for all things. And as our deacon said this morning also, that he is the example of what um, we should all endeavor to be like and indeed uh, in the process of him dying for us we are being conformed to his image and likeness so that uh, prayerfully we will fulfill uh, the responsibilities that our Lord has set before us so those are the things that the Lord put on my heart this morning with respect to fathers again look to Christ for all things but uh, now we're back in John chapter 7 and so all uh, okay (laughs) so now we'll talk about what it says in John chapter 7 and continue with our, our study there so I'll read Verses, um, I'll pick it up in verse 10 through 24 of John chapter 7. Verses 10 through 24. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of his doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil. Who goeth about to kill thee? Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marvel, Moses, therefore, gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receiveth circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me, because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And all all, uh, God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, again, thank you so much for your word. We pray that you will open it unto us, that we might see Christ, his humility and his glory. In his name we pray, amen. Well, um, what takes place back here has its origins back in John chapter 5. You'll recall that it was there that during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also known as the Passover, Jesus went into the pool of Bethesda and he healed a man on the Sabbath day who had an infirmity of Thirty-eight years, of course, a wonderful example, again, of our Father caring for his own, caring for his sheep. Now, because Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath day, he so provoked the Jews that they sought to slay him. And in the conversation that followed, the Jews uh, were more provoked, so the Scripture says they sought the more to kill him. The conversation that followed didn't mollify them in any way, but it actually made things worse. Read about that in John 5.18. Now here we are in John chapter seven. It's now the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the last of the three annual feasts each year where the Jewish males present themselves before the Lord. So once again, we have a large number of people in Jerusalem, people who are going to remember what Jesus did earlier that year, and people who are going to remember how the Jews, which is to say the Jewish religious leadership, sought to kill Jesus. And the people are going to witness their growing animosity towards Christ. So in verse 1, we read, Knowing that the Jews, that is to say the leadership, seek to kill Jesus, Jesus nevertheless goes to Jerusalem. So there's an object lesson here for us here. So what he's doing is he's setting before us the example of how one should not fear man, but rather ever be in obedience to God irrespective of the consequences. So this is setting before us here by way of example. You don't fear man, but rather you obey God while nevertheless exercising prudence. That's an important point to remember here. Knowing the enmity the Jews harbor for him, Jesus doesn't go up early to the feast with his brothers, but later, as it were, in secret. We read that in verse 10. He goes up quietly, not going to draw attention to himself yet. It's not yet his time to be lifted up on the cross. That time is coming downstream, so he goes up. Um, secretly. So he's there quietly, but in the midst of the feast, it's an eight day long feast. In the middle of the feast, he goes into the temple and begins to teach openly. Now, up to this point in the feast, we read that the people had been discussing Jesus, no doubt like people do today. They discuss him quietly or privately, but not openly for fear of the Jews, meaning for fear of man. Now, nothing has changed. If you want to kill a conversation or break up a group discussion, start discussing Jesus openly, and that'll put the kibosh on it. People will uh, will clam up for fear of what others in the group might think of them in addition to any personal conviction that the subject of Jesus might impress upon their hearts. Now, this is something I think that we can all be guilty of at various times particularly so if you're a young Christian. As you grow in the grace and the knowledge and grow in your faith in Christ, you're less likely to have this fear of man and less likely to find yourself um, um, unable to speak uh, because of this this fear. Now, you recall that uh, the Apostle Peter thrice, thrice denied Christ, and it was a sin for which he wept bitterly. The Lord didn't say anything to him. All he did was give him a look. And Peter was smitten in his heart that he had denied Christ, obviously out of fear of man, and he wept bitterly for it. Now, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, the Lord warns us. He says to us, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. So we want discernment, certainly. We want discernment to distinguish when it is, as it says in Ecclesiastes, a time to keep silent and a time to speak. And we want to distinguish that our silence is not due to the fear of man, but rather due to the leading of the Holy Ghost, that the pearls of the gospel that we would share would not be met with a swinish reception. So the Lord is the one who's putting these truths in front of us here. So we would pray that the Lord would give us discernment and that he would also give us utterance that we may open our mouths boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel when the Lord would have us to do so. So it's, you're always kind of looking in your heart as to why am I doing, what am I doing? Am I doing here, am I saying the things that I'm saying because I want to wag my finger at these people or am I doing it because I love them and I want to share the gospel? What is my motivation here? And if I withhold my, my speech, is it because I can perceive that these people are going to just turn around and kill me? They have no interest in the gospel whatsoever and they are going to um, trod them under their foot you know despising the gospel of Christ describe, uh, d- despising those pearls and uh, they are going to then tear me uh, to pieces I think of those fellows that went down I think it was into the Ecuadorian jumble jungle and no sooner did they land on a sandbar than they were you know they were killed they had spears thrown through them it seems to me like maybe they should have uh, done a little more prayer before they entered into what they wanted to do perhaps that they um, They were not uh, discerning in both the reception of the gospel and whether or not that was something God wanted them to do. You'll recall as you go through the book of Acts that the apostle Paul makes it very clear that he follows the leading of the Spirit, that he goes where he is supposed to go and when he's supposed to go. We recall that it says in there that he suffered him, the Spirit suffered him not to go into Asia. Later he goes into Asia. It was just not God's time for that. He would rather that he went over to Macedonia and preached the gospel there. So we always want to be sensitive um, to the Lord's leading, and we always certainly want to preach the gospel, and we would pray that God would give us opportunity to do, and he would give those ears to hear and eyes to see and perceive the things of the Lord and believe on them um, through our witness and testimony. But prayer is where all of this begins. Now, respecting the fear of man, in Proverbs 29, verse uh, 25, it says, the fear of man bringeth a snare. Now, so I think we can say and do things that we ought not to say or do, because of our fear of man we can get ourselves in a little bit of trouble um, for that so we don't want to have a fear of man the next part of proverbs 29 verse 25b says but whoso putteth his trust in the lord shall be safe whosoever putteth his trust in the lord shall be safe so if you link these two things together you think to yourself oh i should not have the fear of man i trust in the lord he'll keep me safe the question is safe from what safe from man? Well, of course not. He's not going to keep you safe from man uh, unless he wants to. You know, God is sovereign. But uh, the Lord has already told us that swine, those that despise the gospel, will trample you underfoot and rend you to pieces. So in the context of our Lord's remark, who but a Christian has pearls to share with men? Who is it but the Christian that might share the gospel? And so history is replete with the blood of martyrs. In John chapter 16, verse 2, we read, They shall put you out of the synagogue, yea, the time cometh, that whosoever killeth you, that would be the saints, those sharing the gospel, whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. That's how upside down they are, and they are going to kill the saints. I mean, we know what took place in the Colosseum with respect to what they did with the, um, the saints there, the Christians there. So, obviously... Proverbs uh, 29 there does not mean he's keeping us safe from people. Revelation chapter 9, excuse me, Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, uh, we read, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. So it's, again, the blood of the martyrs transcends time here. That here they are, they're slain for the word of God, meaning they're slain for preaching for Christ, for standing up for him. Continues, and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? So who but other men have slain these people for their testimony and their witness of Christ. So clearly those that trust in the Lord are not safe from men. So what do you suppose is in view here? What are they safe from? Rather, whom are they safe from? Well, they're safe from God. They're safe from his condemnation and wrath due our sin. And so the Lord warns us about that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, when he says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We are not to fear any man. We are not to fear any angel, including Satan himself. For they, as the Lord says, can do not but kill the body, Fear God, for it is he who judges man, casting all those who do not put their trust in the Lord in the lake of fire. Fear God and fear not man. So obviously that proverb has uh, the application whereby we should not fear man, but trust in the Lord. Fear God. Now, nevertheless, the fear of man is common among men, so I think we can certainly empathize with the people here. They don't speak openly of Jesus for fear of the Jews. They are murmuring, they are discussing Jesus. Some say he's a good man. Others, that he is a deceiver of the people. One is a half-truth, and the other one is overt blasphemy. To say that Jesus is a good man gets you nowhere. That's what the Jehovah Witnesses believe. They believe that Jesus was a perfect man, that he was a good man, but that he's not God incarnate, and if you don't believe that God is not incarnate, then you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You must believe that Jesus is God and that he died for you, or he will avail you not. So their discussions are moot concerning Jesus, save that we know from the, uh, what's written here from the narrative that they uh, fear man and they do not fear God. Um, I did have a a long discourse with a Jehovah Witness once, and I basically told him after this long conversation, I said, you do not have a Savior. You have a perfect man. I said, so whose sins did he die for? Did he die for yours and only yours? Because he's a man, that's all he could do. Or is he God incarnate? If he's not God, he cannot save all of his people from their sins. He cannot bear the wrath of God as he did Uh, and raise himself again from the dead, showing um, that we are justified in him. So unless you believe that Jesus is God... He will avail you not. So there they are with their half-truth that he's a good man. Well, yeah, he is, but he's far, far more than that. Now, from verse 25 in John chapter 7, it is evident that they know that the leadership wants to kill Jesus. Affirming Jesus' statement, which he frames as a question in verse 19, that they go about to kill him. He says, why do you go about to kill me? It's, it's It's a given that they are trying to kill him. And I would appreciate here that we note that they don't deny that they're going about to kill him. They simply answer his question with an accusation that he has a devil and then with a question asking Jesus who it is that is going about to kill him. (laughs) And the question Jesus, who is omniscient, knows the answer to even though they don't know the answer to their own question. Jesus knows the thoughts and intents of the heart of all men at all times throughout history. He knows the thoughts and intents of the heart of all men at the same time at every point in history. Jesus knows that the leadership will send officers to take him. That we read about in verse 32 of John chapter 7. Jesus, who is the author of the Bible, again consistent with the Godhead, knows that, quote, the heathen rage and that the people imagine a vain thing against the Lord and against him, the anointed. Jesus knows that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together, which we see they're doing in John chapter 7. They're taking counsel together against the Lord and against him. Jesus knows what is written in Psalm chapter 2. In its entirety, including word ends, when he says, Kiss the Lord, lest he be angry with ye, and ye perish from the way. He knows it. He's the author of it. Jesus knows the hearts of all men, and that on Nisan the 10th, those that cried, sang, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And four short days later, they would all be screaming, Crucify him, crucify him. Jesus knows what's ever in the hearts of all men. And so knowing all these things, he who is the very manifestation of wisdom fears not man, and he openly teaches in the temple in obedience to his Father. He's most likely teaching the true meaning of that which is written about him and all the law and all the prophets and all the Psalms concerning him, how it all testifies about him, he who is Christ. Something he said back in John 5.39 when he said, Search the scriptures, for in them you think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. And so we should appreciate that all doctrine, notice it's singular, all doctrine, singular, teaches of Christ, either directly or indirectly, teaching who Christ is and what he accomplished and what that means and for whom he accomplished it for. We read in 2 John chapter 1, verse 9. In 2 John 1, 9, it says, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Note that it says doctrine of Christ and not Christ's possessive doctrine, as though Jesus taught something that originated exclusively in himself. In John chapter 8, verse 28, the Lord says, As my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. So the doctrine of Christ is the doctrine of the Father. Jesus is not lifting himself up here seeking his own glory, but rather the glory of the Father. He tells us the doctrine he teaches isn't his own, but rather that of the Father, which he says you would know if you did the will of the Father. Now, What does that mean? And the context here that the Lord gives us, it means what it means for us to do our Heavenly Father's will is for us who are being conformed to the image of the Son to willingly and lovingly accede to and do God's will as we ever see Christ do throughout the Gospels. It means to willingly and lovingly accede to and to do God's will. Not something you do of compulsion, as though absent a loving relationship with God, but a willing conformity of our will with that of the Father's, which would be consistent with our regenerated state, we being new creatures in Christ, partakers of the divine nature that Jesus teaches these things in the temple to a people that know he has no formal instruction as such sets before us another principle that applies to all of God's people. They say here that how can he do this? How knoweth this man letters having never learned? And so the Lord sets a principle before us here. There is a place for seminaries in the intellectual edification of pastors and teachers. However, All men that would apprehend the spiritual truths of the Bible must hear and learn from God himself. As I've shared with you in the past, the Apostle Paul was the most learned and formally educated of all of the apostles. We read that he learned at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel. He was sent there, I don't know at what age, but he had learned where he was from. um, Tarsus was a city of learning also in the secular sense, but then he went down to Jerusalem and he learned at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel. He was well-educated. I think we can uh, assume that he um, spoke different languages, many languages. However, everything he knew about Christ was wrong. The Lord literally put him on his head. It wasn't until he'd received a revelation from God where God takes him up into the third heaven and reveals to him who he is and teaches him himself that the Apostle Paul understood the doctrine of Christ. Now, Jesus tells us about this in terms of what we can expect. In John chapter 14, verse 26, he says, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, we know that's God also, the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. In other words, the indwelling presence of the Holy Ghost will impress these truths upon our hearts. We also read in John sixteen thirty three, the Lord speaking again, Howbeit, when he the Spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, That shall he speak. Same principle about the Lord. I'm not speaking of myself. I'm speaking what the Father has showed me. So too will the Holy Ghost. Now, given this truth, it's no contradiction here that God has set up offices in the church to help edify his uh, body. So we should appreciate that the Lord has given us pastors and teachers to help us. God working through his ordained structure to keep his children from being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12 says that. He says, and he, that would be God, gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, what should the pastors and teachers do? Well, they should ever set before us the doctrine of Christ. That's what I should do every Sunday is set before you the doctrine of Christ. As opposed to doctrines, plural, this is from the scripture, plural, doctrines of devils. You read about that in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Or the doctrines, plural, of men. That's Colossians chapter 2, verse 22. Or other diverse and strange doctrines, plural. Hebrews 13, verse 9. Doctrine of Christ. Singular. It's about Christ. Doctrines of men, doctrines of devil, strange and diverse doctrines are about all sorts of other things. So the admonition to the spirit is respecting the source. Pay attention to what you're being taught and make sure it comports with the Bible. Make sure it comports with God's words and filter it through the Holy Ghost. Prayerfully filter what you learn through the Holy Ghost to read the bible or hear what's being taught out of out of it with understanding requires god working in the hearts of his saints which god will do if you ask him a privilege that every saint has we have access to the father through our lord jesus christ and we can petition him to ask him to open up the word which he will do. And if you study the Bible for any length of time, you can appreciate how there are things you don't understand on Tuesday. But on Wednesday, suddenly you get it because the Lord has opened your eyes to, to what he's trying to share with you there. Now, what follows from verses 19 through 24 in John chapter 7 openly indicts the Jews for not keeping the law of Moses. And how could they keep the law of Moses? They don't understand its provisions or its requirements uh, the things that the Lord taught the people on the Sermon on the Mount. On the Sermon on the Mount, you recall, that's when he sets the spiritual truths and the depth of the Scriptures and the depravity of man before them about what is really required um, from the law. People, do they do not understand the height of God's holiness, nor do they understand the depths of their depravity. So there's no way they could keep it. And the Scripture gives us a number of reasons why. They can't, but here, what this is what we see here. So Jesus has them in verse 24. He has them take a few steps back from the law and consider the big picture because, as the colloquial term is, they are missing the forest for the trees. They are still perseverating over the fact that Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath day during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, back in John chapter 5. Verse 21 here in John 7, he says, I have done one work, and ye all marvel meaning that he has healed somebody on the Sabbath day. So here he sets before them the reason they are going about to kill him. And then he sets before them some simple truths. One, circumcision actually precedes Moses. It was given by God to Abraham, which should, they should know this, that it's not the actual covenant, but rather it's a token. It's a sign of the covenant. It points to something else. So circumcision precedes Moses. Second thing is, if the law requires that a person be circumcised when they are eight days old, and that happens to fall on a Sabbath day, a day where no man is permitted under penalty of death to work, there is no question what they're going to do. They're going to circumcise the person on the uh, Sabbath day so that the law of Moses would not be broken. In other words, clearly the requirement of circumcision on the eighth day, which superficially is a very minor work, but it points to a greater one, supersedes the prohibition against working on the Sabbath. Now, if this be true, should not the healing of a man, making him every whit whole on the Sabbath day, which points to the cross also, is an act of divine mercy, should that not override the prohibition to work on that day also? Well, of course it should. And that's really where he leaves them. Of course it should. But the self-righteous Jews fail to appreciate this. They miss the demonstrated mercy of God, who is the fulfillment of the law, because they can't see past Moses in whom they trust. He tells them that they trust in Moses in John five forty-five. By whom? Moses, that is. They receive the law, the law that's going to accuse them before the Father. Jesus set all that before them in John 5.45. Now, he has just said in verse 19 that none of them keep the law. Now, as we read in John 1.17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace and truth is walking amongst them right now, teaching in the temple, and they can't see him because they have their eyes fixed on Moses and the law and can't see that all of the law testifies of Christ my admonition to us of course is to take a few steps back look at the big picture and always keep your eyes fixed upon Christ and with that admonition I will say amen